it is a complex reading. Uh, so thank you for pointing that out. And uh, one of the things about it is that Paul likes to use, not you, Paul, but St Paul, although you are a saint, uh, Paul likes to use um, terminology that is quite evocative but not quite so precise. So what does Paul mean when he uses phrases like dead to sin or indeed alive to God? And I want to think about those particular phrases this morning as we look at this little reading. See, one of the things about grace is that it's not a new rule or law. It is kind of acceptance without regard to rule or law. In a sense, it means we can do whatever we want, which is a bit directive, uh, a bit dangerous, I think. Because the directive moves from an external law or rule to the internal intent, desire, will. We can do as we choose and we can choose what we want. Uh, in his book Drive, Daniel Pink draws a distinction between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. You might have heard me speak about this previously because I think it's a quite a good illustration of the way grace works. Uh, in extrinsic uh, motivation is to do something in order to gain a reward for doing it or to avoid some kind of <clears throat> punishment or danger or something like that that results from doing a thing. So there are rewards or punishments outside of the thing and an intrinsic motivation is when you do something for the sheer joy or enjoyment of the thing. For example, you might listen to music for the sheer enjoyment of the music. Um, what you desire is the activity itself. You're not doing it in order to get paid or something like that. God's commitment to us is sure. It is not conditional on what we do or do not do. God loves us because God is love. And this could lead a person to wonder, now what's to stop me going for it in unconstrained sin? Indeed, some in Paul's time saw this as a means of increasing God's flow of grace because as sin abounds, surely grace abounds all the more. And the thing about sin is, of course, it comes very naturally to us. <laughs> we don't really have to think too much about it. We don't have to plan to sin, really. Um, once the carrot and the stick motivators are removed and we are left to our own devices, it's quite natural for us to look after ourselves first at the expense of others, much as it is natural for an unhindered compass needle to swing to magnetic north. If we, are if we are not constrained by external rule or law, the risk is that we'll go increasingly into unrestrained sinfulness. A state of lawlessness would ensue. Um, the rioting and looting that we've seen across the US cities recently might be an apt kind of metaphor. When constraints are removed, chaos ensues. And traditional theology suggests that sin in a person goes all the way down to the human core and left unhindered, that sin naturally blossoms to the full. And this is why Paul is quick to point out that all of us who have been baptised into Christ have been baptised into his death. And this means there has been an important change. 
we are to consider ourselves to have died with Christ. We no longer respond to the natural selfish urges that are part and parcel of every human life. Whereas left to our own devices, we naturally look after our own interests before others, Paul is indicating that this natural arrangement has been interrupted by the fact that we have died with Christ. We now have the option to choose to be non-responsive to this selfish prompt. And uh, this finds its expression in some very basic, non-sexy, almost boring kind of things. Ian and I were talking about this last week after the service. Um, As we go through life and we take on various responsibilities, we might find ourselves, for example, needing to get up very early on a Saturday morning in winter, as indeed I had to yesterday, to go with one of my children to a school working bee. And uh, I was naturally resistant to this idea. My nature did not find a lot of motivation in going early in the morning to shovel soil, a thing I don't do very often and I'm not match fit for, um, for several hours and carrying turf around and laying it and I really didn't know what I was doing. So there was the added layer of the humiliation of really just being quite stupid about the whole thing and having people have tell me what I was doing and all that kind of stuff. See, if I were a single person, I might be enslaved to the irrefutable logic that it was better to stay in bed. But I'm married and I have children and my single life is over. It is effectively dead. And I'm not sorry about that, I have to say. I've moved into a new way of life in a family, which involves the fact that I want to be involved with my wife and children at every opportunity and to give them all sorts of opportunities. And this changes the way I desire. My enjoyment and meaning in life is no longer located in me alone. That selfish prompt to stay in bed on a Saturday morning will always be there. It was there yesterday morning. But if I understand myself to be dead to it, it no longer makes sense in the way it used to. I am free to ignore its demands on me. I don't need to be coerced by this extrinsic, by an extrinsic motivator to get me going. I can engage in the self-governance of free choice informed by the reality of my new life. I wanted to get up. I both wanted to stay in bed and I wanted to get up and go and do this thing which was a good thing to do. Because there's a new life that we are born into. And in a sense, this is where baptism is so eloquent. It is designed to be immersive, literally, and tactile, also quite literally. And as a believer in the old days when it was, and Baptist churches still do it this way, um, a believer is lowered below the surface of the water, we are to understand that just as Christ was hid in the tomb, the believer is hid or buried in the waters of baptism. And water also reminds us that our sin is washed away and our relationship with sin is over. We are dead and we do not sin because dead people do not sin. But we're not just those who die in Christ, we're those who are raised with Christ. We come alive again in a new way, alive to new things. The very structure of the meaning of things and what's most important to us shifts 
irrevocably. The fact that I have a wife and daughters has irrevocably shifted my reality. My meaning and purpose and entire sense of well-being is now inextricably linked to these other people. Not only is it inappropriate for me to make decisions without regard for them, it would not go well for me in any way if I were to do so. Selfish comforts and indulgences still have their attraction. They always will. But I only need to think for a moment longer to come to my senses and any decision that I make that disregards my family injures me deeply. As those risen with Christ, we are now able to make choices that previously did not present as viable options. We can choose to give ourselves rather than simply follow our instinct to look after ourselves. We can be moved by the awareness that fuller life is found in deeper engagement in the biggest story of all. And in a sense, this represents a liberation of sorts. Previously, our instinct for self-preservation unconsciously ruled us. There was no compelling reason to make any other choice. We just did what it kind of directed us to do. And now we have a genuine and meaningful option that is not simply only about ourselves. And this new life is one in which death is done away with. The fact that we are raised with Christ never to die again means that death loses its intimidatory power. Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So if we live, even if we die, then we no longer need to be mindlessly or unconsciously intimidated to obey our self-preservation instinct. That means that, not that we should be careless about our life, but that we can make choices that previously were not available to us. Because Christ's death on the cross is the key moment, the once and for all moment in which meaning and the purpose of everything is shifted. It's the pivot point that changes everything. You might say it's the ultimate once and for all moment. I, I looked that up. I tried to find out whether that phrase once and for all originated with the Christ moment, but I couldn't get a definitive answer to that. And there's at least two ways that you could understand the once and for all nature of Christ's death and resurrection. One view says that Christ in his perfection was the ultimately perfect sacrifice and such that his death infinitely satisfies God's need to punish all sin. Of course, the challenge of this view is the assumption that justice requires that someone get punished. There's a less popular way of understanding this once and for all nature of Christ's death and resurrection. And in this, the key events serve to expose the provisional nature of all human understandings and systems of justice. And they're provisional, therefore they're not ultimately true or accurate. And it kind of blows up the entire existing understanding of what justice really is. Because if the highest authorities, both civil and religious, can bring a verdict of guilt, 
on the only truly innocent person, and that verdict is upheld by the mob, the population, the crowd, and disinterested bystanders who join in, and even the tacit agreement of Jesus' own fleeing disciples, then it becomes apparent that we know precious little about the true nature of justice. Of course, the challenge of this view is that it flies in the face of the accumulated history of justice up until that point. And it leaves us with a gap where once there was confidence about our sense of what justice is or was, and we are left looking to the only judge we believe can judge justly. And then in a last gasp of human hubris, we often project onto that judge, God, a sense of justice that we have worked out as if God is constrained by our, our, our sense of justice. But the good news is it doesn't actually matter which one of those two views we would like to hold because the most important outcome remains the same. We who are raised with Christ are set free to enjoy the recalibration of everything. Rather than living under the threat of condemnation and rejection, we can rest assured in the acceptance and love of God's grace. Rather than second-guessing our every decision or action, waiting to see whether God might approve or disapprove, we can come alive to God and ask God to give us new desires in our hearts that are in line with God's own desires, with the result that we are free to do as our heart desires because it's an expression of God's very heart. Over the past few months, I've been doing some further work with a counsellor seeking to understand some of my deeper motives and things that have um, been emotional reflexes of mine and that kind of sometimes had an impact on key relationships. And I'm discovering that when I understand where my motives and reactions stem from, I can be released from their otherwise oppressive power. Now, I could not approach these deep places in my own heart without the absolute assurance of unconditional grace. God's grace is the environment that fosters healing and recovery. The heart's natural response of gratitude and love is where the new desires in line with God's desires get deeply planted. In the deepest of all places, we can learn to love kind of instinctively the way God loves. You see, the disciples' death with Christ changes forever our relationship with our own sin nature. We no longer have to unthinkingly obey it. We have also been raised with Christ, which means a whole new reality comes into view for us, a reality that holds so much more than simply putting ourselves first. The once-for-all nature of Christ's death and resurrection sets us free from the fear of judgment and expulsion. In that place of grace-shaped freedom, our hearts are remade in the likeness of the heart desires of God. We are set free to follow our new hearts with divine imprimatur. This is the most alive anyone can be. So let us go forth 
and be alive to our God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you have done 